is like a trigger content warning, essentially. If there's something that you hear that does not feel good or safe for you to continue to hear, do whatever you need to do. You can leave. You can put headphones in. You can dissociate. I don't, like, if that, like, whatever you need to do to take care of yourself in that moment, do it, please. Okay. Um, yeah. We're going to read Ecclesiastes 2 today in its entirety, <laughs> and it's a little bit long, but it's just like not one you can cut into pieces, and so, um, yeah, follow along if you'd like. Um, I'm going to be reading the NRSV, or the NRS UV updated version, <laughs> um, whatever you like will probably work. Um, so you can follow along with me in verse one. I said to myself, come now, I will make a test of pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But again, this was, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I searched with my mind how to cheer my body with wine. My mind still guided me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly until I might see what was good for mortals to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to, wa from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and of the provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and delights of the flesh, many concubines. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure from all my toil. And this was my reward from all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had spent in doing it. And again, all was vanity into chasing after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the king's successor do? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads, but fools walk, walk in darkness. Yet I perceived that the same fate befalls all of them. Then I said to myself, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said to myself that this also is vanity. For there is no enduring remembrance of the wise or of fools, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How can the wise die just like fools? So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a chasing after wind. I hated my toil in which I had toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to my successor, and who knows whether he will be wise or foolish. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned and gave my heart up to despair concerning all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes one who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave all to be enjoyed by another who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What do mortals get from all the toil and strain with which they toil under the sun? For all their days are full of pain, and their work is a vexation. Even at night their minds do not rest. 
This also is vanity. There is nothing better for mortals than to eat and drink and find enjoyment in their toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment. For to the one who pleases him, God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he gives the work of gathering and heaping. Only to give one who pleases God. This also is vanity and chasing after wind. This is the word of the Lord. Okay. Has anyone here uh, seen one of the best movies in history, the 2005 focus feature, the adaptation of Pride and Prejudice? <laughs> Raise your hand. Yes. Okay. We'll have a movie night, a Trinity movie night. I adore this movie. I loved the book Pride and Prejudice in high school when I read it, and I hated the like super long BBC adaptation. But Kira Knightley as Lizzie Bennet, perfection. And there is a scene in that movie that is not actually in the book, but it illustrates uh, the character's personality and, and sentiment perfectly. And if you don't know the plot of Pride and Prejudice, it's about five sisters, um, the only children of like a lower middle class family at the time. I like put middle class in there per like purposely because like they're perceived as lower class, but they have servants, so they're not lower class. Um, and given the culture of the time, the book is about just getting those girls married. <laughs> that's that's the most important thing. Um, and particularly married to rich, respectable men. Lizzie is the second oldest, and she becomes attached quickly in the book to this dark, brooding, mysterious gentleman, Mr. Darcy, who is portrayed brilliantly by Matthew McFadden. Um, and halfway through the book and film, he proposes to Lizzie, and she turns him down. It's very dramatic. But later that year, she's on a trip with her aunt and uncle, and they have this opportunity to tour Mr. Darcy's home, because apparently that's what people did those days, like just tour super rich people's houses when they weren't there. Um, which I like realized as I was writing that, that people do, like we have house tours now. <laughs> like we, we, we just tour rich people's houses. I, yeah. Um, but so she's like, she's like, they're like resting and having a snack. And they're like, what should we do this afternoon? Let's go tour Mr. Darcy's house. And Lizzie's like, oh no, don't. Um, and she's, she says, no, 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 let's not do that. And her uncle's like, why? And she's like, he's just so, uh, he's so, uh, he's so rich. And her family teases her, and they're like, Lizzie, what a snob you are. And they're like using snob in the opposite way, right? Like she's not rich looking down on a poor person, but she's like a poorish person. Like, oh, we, sh we shouldn't associate with the rich. And it's like, it's just such a good scene. They don't realize like her experience with Mr. Darcy. So it's, it's just a fun scene. Oh, and like, spoiler, everything works out in the end, and Lizzie and Darcy live happily ever after, but it's fine. Um, but I think of this scene often because while I've never been in Lizzie's unique situation of trying to avoid a billionaire marrying me, I have been in her situation of being a poor person in an environment that doesn't match my lived experience in any way. And I thought of this scene while I was reading this passage because by the time I got to the end of it, I had some feelings about our author. <laughs> Primarily that he was a jerk, <laughs> uh, that he had everything more than anyone could possibly um, or probably should claim, and in the end, he's just complaining. He's proving the phrase, money can't buy happiness true, when I know that phrase is not true, right? Like, I know that money can buy stability and security and safety, and so that is a phrase that applies to a certain threshold of people 
but not to everyone else. It doesn't apply to those that are fighting for the, the bottom rows of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, only to the people that have already got those. And I can't relate to him at all <laughs> in this passage. And I don't want to, because again, he's a jerk. I feel like Lizzie, though, like a little bit of a snob. <laughs> like I'm, not, I'm, I'm just sitting with my feelings and not actually thinking of what I could possibly get from this situation. But I just feel like I don't want to learn from somebody that has more than I ever could want for. <laughs> and I get to the end of this passage where he gets to his conclusion and I think, duh, and then just want to move on. And when he started with his like passage where he's like, I had all these things, but I wasn't just some rich bimbo guy. Like I was wise too and concluded that we must just get over that others will benefit from the work that we do and be happy with the little bit of joy that we got from it. I got angry because this person just listed accomplishments like having many concubines and making slaves build buildings for him. And he feels like he has to settle for less an ultimate joy because others will get to enjoy it. Psychoanalyst Nancy McWilliams would describe our author as one with dealing with narcissistic personality disorder, performing at a psychotic level of organization. Like a selfish person that's just behaving really, really badly. I found relief in Leah Michelle Wolf's commentary when she says that many read this passage as satire. I was like, thank God. She says, this passage effectively ridicules the wealthy, powerful, elite male who could claim the great building projects he oversaw as mine, while ignoring the reality of those that actually did the building. She calls attention to the specific first-person vocabulary that Koholeth, oh yep, yep, we'll get there. By the end of this unit, we're going to be so great at it. It's overdone and very purposeful, she thinks that the author seems to be pushing us to see the selfishness um, that's present in this passage. And it helps us realize the absurdity that he believes that he's responsible for all these great things. Wolf compares him to the seagulls in Finding Nemo. Mine, 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 like, Koheleth <laughs> ends with the final understanding that the wise and the foolish, the wealthy and the poor all die equal. You can't take all that you've gotten with you, so it won't provide ultimate happiness. So we should find joy in our toil. He says, there is nothing better for mortals than to eat and drink and find enjoyment in their toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. And while the author doesn't say it because possibly it couldn't make sense to him, I wondered if he was right about his toil, that this toil was the only time he was around others. A feminist and queer reading of this story challenges us to think of the characters that show up without names that get used, that perhaps our original author forgot, and was also, that were also created and beloved by God. The people that built the buildings, that, that worked in the fields, those concubines. I wondered if Koheleth spent less time thinking about how he could get on top and seeing that as the goal of life, and instead spent time with those that, were, that he was exploiting, perhaps he would have had a glimpse of joy a little bit earlier. I thought of his concubines the women that were being sexually assaulted and coerced and how they might be coming together to care for each other and love each other and perhaps accessing joy when the author wasn't around because of their own company. I thought of the ones that were guarding herds and flocks or building great buildings for him and sometimes that our best relationships 
come to us when we are doing work that is not easy or fun because they're the people that take care of us during those times because they know what we're going through. That when the accumulation the author has isn't accessible to someone, we find joy in other ways. I met my wife while working at UPS Warehouse. It is by far the most physically and emotionally taxing job I have ever had in my life, and yet I found joy in her friendship there initially. Kohelis, over-the-top selfishness and the distress it brings to me leads us to consider what might have been a better alternative. In the end, I think he is right. I think we should allow ourselves to find joy in our toil, whatever that is, rather than always putting it off until we've accomplished something new or better. But I think specifically that joy comes from, is going to come from letting ourselves be with the ones that toil alongside us, something our author couldn't even imagine. To not exploit or use others, but to be with people, to be grateful for the things they do for us, to be grateful for the opportunity to do things for them. Kohelet is so frustrated that all the physical things he has are hevel, vanity, vapor. They're like chasing after wind, useless. And I wondered what it would be like if he had valued things that were already like vapor, things that are incredibly valuable but invisible, like love, compassion, and care. And while we may not identify with the main character in this story, perhaps the story is simply telling us to slow down and do that to say hello to our coworkers and ask them how they're doing and answer honestly when they ask us the same question. To be open to love and friendship, even in hard times and places, and to not live for our accomplishments, but to live in the present and know that the people with us are the gift and not the thing that's gonna come at the end. Amen. pray with me. Loving God, sometimes we um, are presented with stories that feel unsettling, and they may cause a flurry of emotions that we would rather not feel. Um, And sometimes it's easier to just walk away from those things. And sometimes it's also important to sit in them. And I admit that I still feel discomfort in this moment, uh, but I am grateful to be feeling that alongside of this family. I'm grateful for the care that I receive from them and the opportunity to care from them, for them. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. You want to scroll?